The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We turn to God's Word in Psalm 10. If you'll turn there with me. Looking at, in the past few months, we've looked at some of the Psalms and some of the more familiar Psalms, of course. And as Dr. Rogers mentioned this morning, the Psalm 10 is not a real familiar Psalm to most of us, but it is a Psalm that is inspired by God, of course, as are all the Psalms, and important. And we're looking at it tonight. So let us give attention to God's Word, Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. He is haughty, and your laws are far from him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it to take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Victimization and oppression are daily occurrences in our world. You can't pick up the newspaper without seeing some sad story of oppression or sin of some kind. We live in a world in which people sin against one another, and sometimes the sin is very great. 
People murder and they cheat and lie and steal. We read about husbands doing terrible things to their wives and and sometimes wives doing terrible things to their husbands. We read about parents abusing children. And we also hear about older children terrorizing parents. The workplace is full of examples of oppression, whether it's sexual harassment or racism or just plain meanness. Bullies exert their power at school. Maybe some of you kids are experiencing that even now. And now we hear and read about bullying online and by texting, a whole new way to oppress others. Maybe you've been deeply victimized at some point in your life. Or maybe one day you will be. Maybe God has put you next to a friend who has gone through something like that or is going through something like that. Christians are not immune from severe oppression and victimization. But as believers, God does give us a vantage point from which to view these kinds of things and from which we can go to Him and find comfort and healing and His merciful care in the face of this kind of victimization. Psalm 10 is like a crash course in the way ahead for those who are oppressed. This brief psalm unfolds in four parts and guides the victim in coming to God with his or her brokenness and pain and oppression. So let's look at these four parts. The first is in verse 1, the victim's cry of desolation to God. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The psalmist is here saying, where are you, O Lord? You say you love me, it seems. I'm paraphrasing here. And yet, this trouble has come. Why do you seem absent at the very point of my anguish and powerlessness and violation? Why don't I know your protection, O Lord? Why don't you intervene? Why is evil seemingly unrestrained? The first reaction of sufferers reflected in this verse is often dominated by this sense of abandonment and isolation. We might ask, is this unbelief or is this a cry of faith? Of course, in the psalm, We go on to see from the perspective of the rest of the psalm that it's a cry that is closely linked to faith in God. But the answer is it could be either in someone's life. This cry by itself, uh, with a person who doesn't know God, it could be a cry, of course, of unbelief and accusation and even hatred of God. In trouble, someone who doesn't know God would easily blame God, in a sense, in unbelief. But for the Christian, for the writer of this psalm, it's a cry of faith and need that looks to God. Yes, there may be here a mixture of faith and doubt. That's true in many of the psalms. But over time, it always becomes clear whether the anguished sense of God's distance is fundamentally processed through faith or through pride and unbelief. If you've been deeply victimized or sinned against, the starting point of coming to God with your anguish is really, verse 1, this cry of desolation. 
Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself? In other words, you're coming to God in the very area of need that you very acutely feel. Even this cry of, where are you, Lord, can be a cry of faith, as it is in this psalm. A cry that pours out a broken heart to God. A cry that begins to look to the Lord in the midst of pain and sorrow. In fact, often, as in verse 1, some of the very best words that simply express our anguish can be found in the Psalms. And a good exercise for you, if you are suffering like this, may be to read through, prayerfully read through the Psalms and highlight or underline phrases and words that are really the words of your heart as well. The Psalms are very excellent for that kind of heart searching and examination. Or maybe you have this cry in your heart for someone dear to you, someone you're praying for, maybe a child, maybe a grandchild who's going through something like this, someone in your life. Or maybe you're someone who's lived far from God because of some deep victimization you've experienced as a child or young person earlier in your life. And maybe you feel that there can't be a God because of what you went through. And so in some ways, verse 1 expresses your heart. In a sense, verse 1 has been the theology of your heart for years, a theology of doubt, a theology that sees God as absent. But although God may feel absent, the Bible says, the gospel says that he is not absent. He has not been absent. And as we'll see from the rest of the psalm, and the reason that God is not absent is because supremely Jesus Christ came into this broken world full of sin and oppression. And Jesus Christ came and was willingly oppressed and willingly gave himself to be ultimately victimized on the cross to lay down his life for sinners. He was willingly abandoned by the Father because he bore our sins and the wrath of God on sin was poured out on him. And so we do not need to be abandoned because Jesus was abandoned in our place. If we call on God through Christ, and in your sense of God being absent, is if that's been the functional theology of your life for years, the Lord invites you to trust in Him and to know His love through Jesus Christ and His cross and His resurrection. And so that's the first point, this cry of desolation. Secondly, we find a biblical assessment of the oppressor, a biblical assessment of the oppressor. In verses 2 through 11, we see this. This is a major part of the psalm. In fact, no psalm gives us a fuller description of the thought processes and actions and emotions of those who hurt others. This is like a biblical psychoanalysis of what oppressors are like. And what makes them really tick? Why do bullies do what they do? I read an article about that the other week, and the upshot of this secular article was was they do it because they enjoy it, because they love it, because it gives them a feeling of power. Uh, Why do abusive husbands do what they do? I'm not saying there aren't complexities, but this psalm speaks to the motivation. The psalm spells out the inner working of those who oppress the inner workings of their heart. Why? Because it 
it helps to describe exactly what you are up against. You see, the Bible does not sugarcoat the working of evil in this world or of people who are controlled and ruled by evil. Walk with me through this many-faceted description of this biblical assessment of the oppressor here. Verse 2, in his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. Hurtful people, it says here, are arrogant. They are self-ruled and self-exalting. They exalt themselves and their own agenda, what they want. They hunt down the weak, it says. They, the, the evil seeks out victims. In each case, someone with power or pretensions to power picks on the relatively powerless to further his self-interest. Verse 2 mentions the schemes he devises. The wicked think about using and abusing others. Violence and betrayal are not just accidental things. They are devised. The oppressor pursues a plan of action. Whether it's human traffickers in Southeast Asia who kidnap or purchased young girls to enter into slavery, or whether it's scam artists who prey on the elderly in Lancaster County, the oppressor arrogantly devises wicked schemes. Verse 3 says, he boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. Verse 3, this analysis in verse 3 of evildoers lays them bare, doesn't it? They do what they want. He boasts of the cravings, the desires of his heart. He does what he delights in. And to serve self-centered desire, we all know, is idolatrous. It's not to serve the Lord. And deep down, the evildoer then is spurning God. He reviles the Lord. Verse 4, in his pride, the wicked does not seek him, God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Doesn't that aptly summarize the motivation and the heart? Something bigger is going on. It's a matter concerning God. And it helps, it helps for the oppressed, those who have been victimized, to know this, that those or the person who is oppressing me really has a fundamental problem with God himself. It's put, it, that this verse puts oppression and victimization in a God context. Verses 5 and 6, his ways are always prosperous. He is haughty, and your laws are far from him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. Isn't it interesting? These verses describe the prosperity of the wicked, in this case, the wicked oppressor. Abusers seem to get away with it. In the short run, their ways apparently prosper, and they leave misery in their wake. But they seem to be doing just fine. And and in life, often, God's judgment seems remote. And violators think, everything's going well with my life. Nobody can stop me from doing what I'm doing, and I'll never reap any consequences. I'm getting away with all, and everything's working well. But notice here, even in analyzing the evildoer, 
in verse 5, the sufferer in this psalm is talking to God. Notice how he says it. He says, he is haughty and your laws are far from him. So even as he's doing this analysis, he says, he doesn't say, and God's laws are far from him. He's speaking to God here. It's the form of a prayer. And your laws, O Lord, I could insert that, are far from him. I think that's an interesting sidelight here. Verse 7 shows us how these people think and talk in their hearts. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. This verse is giving us categories of how the oppressor typically talks. Curses, lies, threats. Jesus has told us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the the heart of the oppressor is overflowing with these kinds of things. And under the tongue, we find that there is trouble and evil. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul picks up on this verse in Romans chapter 3, when he marshals a number of Old Testament verses to describe the state of mankind, both moral and religious, pagan and religion, all under sin, and this is one of the verses that describe it. So we need to be quick to remind ourselves that sufferers must also examine their own hearts. And we need to ask ourselves, does my reaction to evil reveal my own heart? Well, certainly it does. And we are all sinners as well. Hopefully, sinners saved by grace through Christ. But we just need to remember that this verse addresses all of us in Romans 3. And often, sin begets sin. If someone sins against you, it's really easy to sin back, if not in actual practice or deed, at least in your heart. Then in verses 8 through 10, we see further what is going on here. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victim. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. We see kind of what is going on in secret, in the oppressor's plans. The oppressor doesn't live out in the open. He's a stalker, either literally or figuratively. And it's interesting how verse 8 describes of the innocent. He murders the innocent. This isn't speaking of someone who's sinless, but it's speaking in terms of innocent, and this person didn't do anything to this oppressor to deserve this. He's innocent in that sense. One area that we seek about, we think about secret oppression is very typically child abuse. And if you read about street children in the third world, in the majority world, you read that lots of street chil- chil- children in the minority world are on the street because their mothers have remarried or have a boyfriend living with them and their father's not in the home anymore. And that child is now being severely abused or oppressed. And as a result, the child ends up on the street at age 7 or age 5 or age 8, fending for himself or herself. It's done in secret. And verse 11 tells us that the oppressor thinks he'll never be called to account. He says to himself, 
God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. In other words, a practical atheism rules the oppressor's mindset. And it results in deep oppression. He doesn't think he will give an account to God. I don't know if you would guess this, but possibly the greatest human rights violation in the world is China's one-child policy. And it's been going on for decades now. And the amount and the severity of deep oppression brought about by that, women forced to be sterilized, women, there are accounts of forced abortions. There was just an account in this in world of a secular woman who was so struck, a Chinese lady with a PhD who, when she saw this anonymous young Chinese woman testifying about the horrors of what she went through, it changed her life, and she began a nonprofit group that sought to help in this area. From the highest level of Chinese government down to the local bureaucrats that have to enforce this oppressive law, the one-child policy. It's very oppressive. But it, it ties in with verses 8 through 11. It's, it's almost a secret thing. They carry out their plots and their plans. So we see there are many kinds of abuse. And verses 2 through 11 typify and diagnose for us what's going on here. Well, thirdly, we see this wonderful cry of reliance on God in verses 12 through 15, a cry of reliance on God. Arise, Lord, lift your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it to take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you, You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. So here, the victim, the sufferer, calls on God. He calls on God to notice. See, O Lord. He calls on God to remember and to do something. He may wonder. Verse 1 certainly makes us believe that the sufferer is wondering, when is God going to act? Is God going to act? But believing sufferers, we're told here, rely on God. They call on God. They cry out to God, arise, Lord, lift up your hand. The believing sufferer knows that God does not forget, that God is not unable to act and knows that God will take matters into his own hands in his time. He has seen. And ultimately, we know that this takes place at the final judgment when God will right every wrong. But also, there are many times that God brings about justice in this life. And sufferers look to the Lord as the only real source of help. Yes, Sufferers who are oppressed may need other forms of human help. They may need legal help. They may need mercy ministry help. They may need a homeless place to go and stay. They may need counseling. They may need uh, a shelter from abuse. But at the deepest level, the sufferer needs the one who can wipe away every tear. Verse 14 has that 
description, the victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. In that society, to be fatherless was to be very weak and to be very open to to harm in some way and to, to be poor and so forth. And God is the helper of the fatherless. He is the one who wipes away every tear. In verse 15, calls upon God to break the arm of the evil man. To break the arm, you know, when you think about what that means, it's to break the arm that's carrying out this oppression so that the oppression can no longer take place. It's a cry for God to make evil ineffectual. And the logic of the evildoer is turned upside down. He thinks that God doesn't see, but the psalmist tells us from God's word that God does see. He sees trouble and grief, verse 14. He considers it to take it in hand. This is the declaration of God's word. It's interesting how there's this prayer for justice here in this psalm, and we have to meld this together with what other parts of the Scripture say to the person being oppressed. There are two strands of truth here, and they are to both coexist in the believer's heart and mind and prayer life. One is to pray for your enemies, to bless your enemy, to ask for God's spiritual blessing on that person, to convert him, to change him, for grace for the enemy. But also there's this strand of truth that is not contradictory to loving your enemies, and that's praying for justice. Whether that be justice finally on the last day, or whether that be justice by the person coming to Christ and his sins being dealt with at the cross, or whether it's God carrying out his justice in some way in this life. Both of those prayer requests can be true at the same time. Both of those attitudes of heart, both a loving, forgiving, praying for enemies kind of attitude, and also mingled with praying for justice. The two are not contradictory. And this psalm reflects especially this attitude of praying for justice, that God would right the wrongs. And it looks forward to the return of Christ, to even pray for Christ's return. Even so, come Lord Jesus is to pray for God's justice to come. Because when Jesus comes, the day of salvation is at an end. And so the biblical view of life holds both. These two biblical concerns go hand in hand. You just see it in the example of someone like Joseph, whose brothers sold him into slavery. You think of all the suffering he went through because of their sin against him. But finally, in Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20, Joseph says, Am I in the place of God? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many souls. And you see Joseph, obviously, through much maturity of his faith, coming to the point of being able to declare that to those who had been so cruel to him. Well, our final point is a confident affirmation, the Lord will right wrongs. Verses 16 to 18, a confident affirmation, the Lord will right wrongs. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. This confident affirmation says that the Lord will hear the desire of the heart. 
When the afflicted are suffering, God hears their heart cry. It's like the nation of Israel groaning in Egypt. And God says he's heard their cry. And he will strengthen their heart, and he will act to destroy the powers of harm and terror. You see, evildoers have a brief moment of power, but God is going to right every wrong. Their power soon vanishes like the morning mist, and the Lord defends the fatherless and the oppressed. Have you been victimized in some way? Are you being victimized? Are you a friend of someone who was or is being victimized? By all means, seek out any kinds of human help that you can get. There are shelters, there are counselors, there are all kinds of resources you can seek. But above all, do what we see in this psalm. Talk to God. Pour out your cry to Him. Believe the truth about God. God is not absent. And the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ came into this world to save us from sin. And believe the truth of God about oppressors. See what this psalm tells us about oppression and that it will come to an end. And then on the basis of that, cry out to God for yourself, for the person you're counseling or trying to help and talk to, maybe your friend. Even cry out to God for the oppressor and the enemy, that even in this life, someone like the wicked oppressor Saul might be turned into the apostle Paul. That's the way God works through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this psalm, this psalm that assures us of your power and righteousness and justice, even in the midst of the deep brokenness of this life. Help us to take heart from it, to be transformed by it. Help us each to turn away from evil and wickedness and oppression that we would carry out in some way. And Lord, help us to cry out to you in faith when we are being oppressed, knowing that you have not lost control of the reins of our lives. We ask that you would build up our faith through suffering even to the glory of your name through Jesus Christ. Amen.